0: Revelation 11, verse 1, John says, Then I was given a reed, like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles." And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And Father, we humbly pause and ask for grace and help from your Holy Spirit's ministry for each one of our lives individually and collectively as a church family, that we might hear what it is your Spirit wants to speak to us this day through the portion of the Word of God in front of us as an act of worship unto you. Lord, receive our attention, speak to us, write your will on the fleshly tablet of our hearts and prepare us as well, as we even then partake of communion together as well. And we asked expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. You may be seated. You know, I don't often spend much time trying to title messages, but if I were to title this morning's message in front of us, I would entitle it, God Measures Worship. God measures worship. That is, he evaluates, he assesses, or as we might say, he measures worship. That is, what we worship, that matters to God. Why we worship, that matters to God. How we worship, that is, even in the way we go about worship and how we conduct ourselves, the method, the manner in which we worship offer worship, that all matters to God, and if it aligns with God's standard for what worship is supposed to be and deems right and acceptable. Now, I know this is true because Scripture alludes to this reality. For example, Isaiah 29, the Lord says there, these people come near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based merely in human rules that have been taught. So again, God alludes to this reality of worshiping, giving to him, if you would, mouth service, lip praise, singing the songs, saying prayers. And he says, but yet their heart is completely disconnected from me. Their heart's not engaged in the process. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus, who of course was God in the flesh, declared this, he said, they worship me in vain. Now, that's a strong statement. (laughs) Imagine that Jesus would say, yeah, they worship me, but it's in vain. It's empty. It's not something that has meaning and value to it. Isaiah chapter one, we've been on Wednesdays going through the book of Isaiah together. It's been quite a while since we've been in chapter one, but there, listen to how God speaks of sort of worship that was displeasing to him. The Lord says there in Isaiah 1, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come appear before me, who asks this of you? Then God says, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. I cannot bear Your worthless assemblies, they have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. The reason? Your hands, God said, are full of blood. In other words, they were into sin in different ways. Wash, he says, make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight stop doing wrong. Now, (laughs) that's strong language there. To think that God himself would look at the nation of Israel and their worship practices, prayers, assembly times, meetings, coming together, offerings and sacrifices and all the things they were doing, and God says what they were doing, he says, it's meaningless, it's detestable to me, and I can't even bear your worthless assembly meetings that you're having. Boy, that's pretty scary, isn't it? To think that God could look at a worship gathering and say, that actually disgusts me. Outwardly, it looks like you're doing all the right things. You're singing the songs, you're praying the prayers, you're preaching the sermons, you're doing all the things, you're giving your finances, and God says, and honestly, all of it, it makes me sick because the heart's not right in the midst of it. They were engaged in sin, their hearts weren't in a proper place before God. Boy, that's a a sobering reminder of God evaluating and measuring worship. Jesus said in John chapter 4, True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. Notice God's seeking worshipers. And then he went on to say, Jesus said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So, it's very evident God evaluates worship. God measures worship as people, and we actually see this taking place in the most literal sense right here in our text this morning. Now, remember the backdrop briefly before we look at verses 1 and 2 together in this unique event where John is seeing this vision that God has been giving to him supernaturally. We're looking at events at this time in the book of Revelation that are transpiring on the earth during the time of the seven-year period of tribulation, that time period where after Jesus has removed the church, he's removed Christians from the planet, taken us safely up into heaven as our reward, and then begins judging with the righteous wrath of God, the just punishment upon humanity that is left behind on the earth as the result of their rejection of God, of their refusing to embrace Jesus Christ as God's plan for salvation, for the forgiveness of their sins and their hope of eternal life, and just the general rebellion of mankind against God and their sin all throughout human history. It's a time period when as we've been seeing much hardship, severe suffering, absolute chaos will be happening here on this planet for those who have been left behind. And that will lend itself to looking for any means of survival, which makes sense. As the world's thrown into chaos, as people are suffering, <clears throat> people will be looking in any way they can for whatever it takes to be spared, to survive, to somehow get by in the midst of the chaos, which will give birth to the rise in the acceptance of a one world ruler who humanity will look to and will throw their support behind because he will somehow persuade them that he can save everyone, that he can keep everything under control, bring peace back on a chaotic planet. And the Antichrist, this man who we know him of in the scriptures, will be this charismatic political genius who will come on the scene out of the European area, it seems, and will be embraced by the entire world who will throw their support behind him and allow him to take over global uh, rulership. And in desperation, the world will enthrone him and will give to him opportunity to be in control and he will implement lots of global unification efforts all around the globe. He will be someone who brings to pass in ways like never before, peaceful coexistence, global economies, whatever he can to unify everyone globally, to rally together suffering humanity to survive the chaotic times. And one of his greatest acts will be in a way like never before in human history to implement peaceful coexistence, even in the Middle East, which lends itself, and why I bring this to your attention, to what our text is describing today. Look with me in verse one. John says, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod." Now this reed, like a measuring rod, John would be familiar with what he's describing here. In the Egyptian and Jordan Valley, these reeds would grow in that territory. They were strong, they were very hard, but yet they were also hollow, which made them lightweight, sort of like a piece of bamboo. Strong, very rigid, but yet hollow inside, so they're not heavy, and they can grow anywhere from 10 to 15 to 20 feet. So, they make a very useful, if you would, measuring device, a measuring stick that could be utilized to assess and to take measurements. So, John says, this was given to me, and then verse 1 goes on to say, and the angel said to me, rise, measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. So, he's instructed now to take this measuring rod and to go forth on God's behalf and to take these measurements. Now, what's interesting is we're never told the measurements. All we're clearly told is that God wanted him to measure the temple, the altar, and those present worshiping there. Now, let me say something very clearly. I know I'm overstating the obvious, but reading verse 1 tells us something very important, that there will be a Jewish temple in existence during the time of the seven-year period of tribulation that is soon coming upon the earth, which would require at least two things. First of all, the existence of a Jewish nation there in the land with a degree of control in the area of Jerusalem. Now understand, in John's day, That was not a reality in around 90 to 95 AD when John was receiving this vision, nor would that be a reality for centuries and centuries beyond John's day in 90 to 95 AD where Jews were scattered around the globe without a homeland for many, many generations, yet God miraculously persevered their identity as his chosen people because he's always had a plan for the nation of Israel, and despite hardship, that he would one day bring to pass what is to this day still a sociological miracle, and that is that any people without a homeland, usually within a generation or more, lose their national identity. And yet for centuries and centuries and centuries, the Jews were scattered around the globe And God preserved their national identity. Isaiah chapter 66, when we get there, there's a very unique verse that says this. It says, who has heard of such things or ever seen things like this? Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. And God fulfilled Isaiah chapter 66 when in May 1948, a Jewish state and Israel as a nation was miraculously reborn in a day. And in a day, God miraculously restored the nation of Israel and restored them miraculously to begin be a nation back in their original homeland. And then in 1967, of course, Israel then regained on top of that, control of the area of Jerusalem, their holy city that has always been their capital city and is where the temple of God always was in its existence in prior times. Now, as I said, another thing that would require what John's seeing to come to pass is a Jewish temple functioning with an altar with blood sacrifices will be rebuilt at some point in front of us in human history. The Bible testifies to this coming to pass, and John is seeing it right here. Now, we'll talk more about that in a moment. Understand, the Bible declares the existence of five different temple structures that either have been already there on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, or at some point will be there in the future. And whenever we read of the temple, the temple, remember, always represented God's presence amongst his people. It was a clear indication it always represented that god wanted to be present with his people and in their midst and that god would then allow them to approach him on his terms to worship him in the prescribed manner that they might honor god and be in right relationship now after god's enactment of the initial remember we might say mobile worship system which was the tabernacle remember the tent in moses day where God instituted for them a way to properly worship him. God gave to them the prescribed way to approach him and to worship him, and God taught them that. And for 40 years, as they journeyed through the wilderness, they had a mobile system where they would set up and tear down, and set up and tear down as they moved around the wilderness. But then when they entered into the land that God had promised them, And they settled down. That was when David, remember, had it in his heart to build a permanent structure there in Jerusalem where they might have a temple, a physical building that was permanent. And remember, God gave David supernaturally the blueprints of that temple structure. And the reason God gave David those blueprints, remember, is the earthly temple of God that they would worship in and the system of it was always to be a representation or a type of the eternal heavenly temple of God that exists there in God's presence in heaven and the way that he's being worshiped. That first temple wasn't built, however, by David. Remember, the first of the five temples the Bible speaks about was built by Solomon, David's son. David gave him the blueprints. David provided for it. God said, David, I reward you for having it in your heart, but your son Solomon is the one who's gonna be chosen to build it because David was a man of war. Now, that first temple was destroyed during the Babylonian conquest. The second temple that we see in the Bible was built under Zerubbabel. He had a friend named Barney. I'm sorry, just, it seemed like a fit. That's one of those unplanned things, just came to my mind in the moment. I just let it out, sorry. Good thing we're having communion. I'll repent of that afterwards. Zerubbabel, under his leadership, built the second temple, and that was when Cyrus permitted the Jews, remember, to return after the captivity, back to Jerusalem for that express purpose. That temple was much less glorious than Solomon's temple structure that was built. The third temple was really, really often referred to as Herod's temple. And what the third temple was, was an expanded and an upgraded temple due to a 46-year renovation project when Herod was ruling during the time of the Roman Empire. And Herod sought to greatly enhance the beauty, the magnificence of that second temple that was built. Herod's temple was around during the day of Jesus living on the earth. It's the temple Jesus entered into. It also was the temple that Jesus prophesied would be destroyed. In Luke chapter 21, verse 5 and 6, this is some of the disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God, and Jesus then said, as for what you see here, that magnificent temple, the time will come when not one stone will be left upon another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Jesus prophesied of its destruction, and in 70 AD, when Titus released his savage venom against the jewish people that temple was destroyed and desecrated and burned at that time and the jews were severely persecuted again and dispersed among many lands the fourth of the five temples the bible refers to is the temple that we're reading about here that will be built and exist during the time of the tribulation which is why we often call it the tribulation temple And a fifth and final temple that will one day exist is actually a temple that will exist described in Ezekiel 40 to 48, which is a millennial temple. During the time of the kingdom age, that thousand year reign when Christ will return and rule on the earth, there will be a fifth temple, a millennial temple. Now in John's vision at this time when he receives this, 90 to 95 AD, there had been no temple structure there in Jerusalem for at least a good 20 years in fact there would be no physical jewish temple as there has not been any for the last 2000 years yet what the bible is very clear is there is coming a time where a temple will be rebuilt and we see it described here often what we call the tribulation temple that will be in existence in that time period of the seven year period of tribulation jesus who was god referred to the literal existence Of this tribulation temple we have described here in front of us, Matthew 24, 15, Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation, referring to the Antichrist, standing in the holy place, referring to the holy of holies. As well, God's word in other locations describes this temple's existence. 2 Thessalonians 2, referring to the Antichrist, says the lawless one who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship, so that he takes his seat, <clears throat> excuse me, in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Daniel prophesies in chapter 11, verse 31, saying, forces from him, this one world ruler, shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress, and he shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination Which makes desolate. Now, I point that out because in order for the Antichrist to come in and to desecrate this temple, it has to exist. (laughs) Jesus said it would exist. The Holy Spirit inspired Word of God said this temple will exist so that the Antichrist can go into it and desecrate it. Now, with Jerusalem itself, even right now, and the Temple Mount area being, we could call it like a keg of dynamite. In the Middle East, because of not political tensions, but religious tension and such strong ideological beliefs, Jerusalem and the Temple Mount to this day is like a powder keg waiting to explode. How in the world are the Jews going to potentially rebuild a temple there on the Temple Mount area? Well, the Bible indicates this will be one of the amazing political accomplishments of this coming One World ruler. That he will manage to deceive through peaceful initiatives. Daniel 9.27 tells us, Daniel 9.27, that this coming ruler will confirm or ratify a covenant, some type of a treaty with many for seven years during the time of what we call the tribulation. He will successfully somehow enact a seven-year peace treaty with the Jews and others who oppose the Jews to allow the Jewish people to have everyone somehow approval and acceptance to rebuild their temple and again worship, even with sacrificial blood offerings, there with an altar in existence. Which is why in verse 1 we read here that in the time of the tribulation, there will be the temple of God, the altar, and notice, and those who are actually worshiping there. And Look, I can tell you this. Already today, there is a zealous group of Jews. They're often referred to as the Temple Mount Faithful. You can Google them. You can find them. And they are deeply committed to rebuilding the Jewish temple. There is a place in Israel called the Temple Institute. I've been there myself when I went on a trip to Israel. If you've been there, you've perhaps visited there as well. And at the Temple Institute, They have already reconstructed many of the furnishings and the implements that are necessary for temple worship. They are even training young men as priests to be ready to perform temple duties and to know how to properly offer sacrifices according to Mosaic law. Their clearly stated goal is to rebuild a temple and reinstitute Mosaic temple worship once again. They're in Jerusalem, and they believe, and here's the eerie part, they believe that when their Messiah comes, that one of the marks of their Messiah is he will let them rebuild their temple. Now, the sad thing is they're going to be very easily deceived when the Antichrist himself, who is instead of or opposed to Christ, steps in to fulfill the very desire that they want. Interesting, Jesus said... In John five, I came in my own name and you did not receive me, but another will come in his name and him you will receive. And so he will somehow broker this peaceful negotiation to let them rebuild their temple. Daniel nine, however, also tells us that halfway through that seven year period, right at the middle mark, the antichrist will then turn on the Jewish people And he will, it says, forcefully end, forcefully, the sacrifice and offerings. He will enter into their temple, proclaim himself to be God, as I just read from 2 Thessalonians a bit ago, and demand to be worshipped. Again, 2 Thessalonians 2 says the Antichrist will take his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God, demanding to be worshipped. Jesus refers to that act as the abomination that causes desolation. It becomes the tipping point for the satanic venom of the Antichrist to be unleashed against the Jewish people that will then last for the last three and a half years of the tribulation when chaos is intensified. Now, what's interesting is John is told here, notice in verse 1, to measure the temple and the altar. Now, those are physical things. You could take literal dimensions of a temple and of an altar but notice he's also told the end of verse one to measure those who worship there now how do you measure worshipers what that very clearly indicates to me is god was not only taking physical measurements god was also measuring all of this spiritually he was taking a spiritual assessment of what is going on in that temple At that altar and those who are worshiping there. And it failed to measure up to God's standard because it was not proper worship. It's not the prescribed worship or the type of worship that God desires. Understand this tribulation temple that the Jews will rebuild is an apostate temple. It's a profane temple that's not ordained by God. It was permitted by the Antichrist. God doesn't endorse it. He just records its existence because the worship happening there is trusting again in the sacrificial blood of animals for righteousness and believing that they can be right with God through rejection of Jesus Christ and the sacrificial offerings under Mosaic law and even worse, It's ultimately defiled and desecrated, and there will ultimately be satanic worship happening in that temple as the Antichrist goes in and proclaims himself to be God. Understand, as they're reinstituting a sacrificial system and building the altar and making sacrifices, that is just another offense to the reality of worshiping Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who took away the sin of the world as the ultimate Passover Lamb. It becomes an affront to God because Jesus himself was sent to fulfill the Mosaic law. Hebrews 10 tells us the blood of animal sacrifices cannot take away sins. They would just temporarily cover them. They were just a foreshadowing of the ultimate Passover, Jesus himself, the Lamb of God sent from heaven, who once for all would make the perfect final sacrifice with his sinless life to eradicate humanity's sins a once-for-all death of the Son of God on the cross sacrificially, which is why Jesus said it is finished. No more sacrifices are necessary. To offer another sacrifice is an affront to say that Christ's sacrifice is not enough. It's not sufficient. And anytime we think that we have to do something sacrificial or some sacrament or some act, to further obtain righteous standing with God or acquire righteous standing with God, what we are conveying as an affront to God is what Jesus did was not sufficient. So we have to add a little something to it. We need to do something to keep ourselves right with God. The Bible tells us in 1 John 1, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. So this temple will be a profane apostate temple And the very action of having an altar and blood sacrifices will be an affront to Jesus because the only way to properly approach Jesus, God's measurement, is by coming to Him through His Son, Jesus Christ, trusting in the finished work of Jesus, His sinless life, His sacrificial death, His resurrection and ascended life, that all those who come to God through Him, the Bible says, He saves completely. He saves perfectly. And we must humbly come to Jesus and Him alone, relying upon Him as well as this tribulation temple, worse, was defiled, as I said, by the ultimate worship of Antichrist, which will happen right within that temple. Now, that is satanic worship to the greatest extent. The center and focus of attention will be the idolization and the adoring of a man and a satanically inspired man at that. And again, that's a great affront to God because Jesus is the only one that should be worshiped. Jesus is the only one who should be the center of attention in worship, no human being whatsoever. And look, whenever Satan deceives humanity in a way whereby they begin to give undue attention and honor and glory and focus on a man, that is a horrible affront to God. It's a, it's a severe affront because only Jesus should be adored and honored and be the central focus of our worship whenever we come to give worship to God. So John measures this temple, and I believe in the midst of it, God is revealing how this worship, John, it does not measure up. That worship there does not measure up, measure it. It doesn't measure up. That's not what is proper worship. It's not what God desired. Notice John is also told as he's measuring in verse two there, it says, to leave out the court, which is outside of the temple, and he says, don't even measure that. The idea is it's way worse. <laughs> don't even take a measurement there. And they will, he says, have been given to the Gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So notice, he says, John, as you're measuring, don't even include the measurement of the area outside the temple. He says, because that area is under Gentile control. The idea here of the use of the word Gentiles in this particular section is a reference to those who would be pagan. Or those who were unbelievers. It's the same way that Gentile worship is utilized and referred to in Ephesians chapter 2. Those who don't worship God in a proper way, they don't know God, and they don't have proper hope in Him. So, the Gentile image here is a reference generically to those who are not properly worshiping God. They're worshiping in a pagan way, false gods, and in a wrong manner. And notice the court, he says, outside of the temple, verse 2, it says, notice there it says, has been given, notice that word given to the Gentiles. The idea indicating something was worked out where that area outside of this rebuilt temple has been assigned to Gentiles. Some agreement, some, you know, uh, willingness to give them that area. Interesting, in 1967, when Israel regained Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, the Temple Mount area was given over predominantly by the Jews to the Muslims, which is why to this day on the Temple Mount area there in Jerusalem, you see Muslim structures. Likely, this is a reference to Muslim worshipers who are still engaged worshiping there, simultaneously occupying the Temple Mount at the same time that the Jews have rebuilt their temple somehow through a negotiation and a covenant. He notice he says there in verse 2 as well, that the Gentiles will even tragically tread the holy city underfoot, the idea is in disgrace, for 42 months or for three and a half years. So it appears, the Bible's indicating, that Jews and Muslims will probably share that Temple Mount area during this time when the temple is rebuilt, and both sides will peacefully coexist through a concession. Here you have humanity engaging in short-term peaceful coexistence no doubt celebrating toleration of all things, unity of all faiths and religions. We can all have our own way. Let's just globally be unified, and Jews will be allowed to build their temple while Muslims still worship there as well. And in John's day, God knowing this reality, it wasn't even there, but God showing it to John because God knew what would one day be there. And God is showing this to John, and he's saying, John, you see that? Measure that. But that area outside the temple, the, the court of the Gentiles, don't even measure that. Don't even, that. That's even further away from what my idea was. Don't even measure that particular area. Now, when you look at the Temple Mount today, you see a very strong Muslim presence there. If you ever looked at a picture of that area, or you can Google one again, you see a large gold dome-shaped prominent structure that the Muslims have there, which was referred to as the Dome of the Rock. It's a very important Muslim holy place where Islam is engaged in and celebrated. Some believe that what will happen is in the midst of the earthquakes during the tribulation, that that Dome of the Rock, the structure will be destroyed, and then they will be able to rebuild the temple where that structure once sat. What's another interesting idea, in 1983, an archaeologist named Asher Kaufman produced some very interesting research that he showed that the actual foundations potentially of God's original holy temple that was once there before in history actually is not where the Dome of the Rock sits, but actually is an area about 300 foot north of where the Dome of the Rock currently sits which if a sophisticated political leader, like a one world ruler, who's a political genius, can broker a peace deal that allows for both holy places to coexist on the same Temple Mount area, Kaufman believes, even if the Dome of the Rock remains, that the temple can still be built on this other location about 300 uh, feet north of there, where they found actually a large piece of original flat bedrock, which would be much like the threshing floor, remember, of a of the Jebusite, that David bought, which became the location of the temple, and that the Muslim Dome of the Rock, then, would be located in an area which would sit in the outer court of a rebuilt temple, which would allow for both to be there. Now, when I read these things, I think, man, the eternal God knows and foresees everything in human history. He knows how it all aligns, how it works together. And look, this powerful, all-knowing God wants to have relationship with you and I, and he wants us to experience him personally. This amazing God of human history wants to have personal interaction and experience with us but let me say this, but we have to approach God on his terms, not on our terms. God has standards. God has righteous ways. It matters to God. Our heart condition, our worship matters to him. He's established right uh, standards. And look, even as we see here, them measuring the temple of God, measuring the altar, which represented worship, measuring the worshipers who are there practicing their worship. It reminds me in a personal application for us this morning that God measures our worship as people. God measures our worship. It matters to him. He has right and proper standards for worship. And I can tell you folks, those standards are the word of God, not the traditions of a church. Not the traditions or ideas of a group of people who say, this is the way we like to express words. It's the word of God. It's according to the standards of the word of God. And secondarily, God's other standard is his son, Jesus Christ. That is how God measures worship. According to the word of God and the son of God in our right relationship with them Sometimes when God measures us and measures our worship, I think on occasion, if we would all be humble, he probably finds some things out of alignment. Would you think once in a while? And as he finds things out of alignment in our lives, as we're being measured, if we're not measuring up, we should seek to repent. And we should seek his forgiveness and be thankful that there is a right way to worship him because of what Jesus has done for us. And look, celebrating communion gives us an opportunity to do that because the Bible says it's a time when we're supposed to examine ourselves, to let God measure us, to let God assess where we're at spiritually as we reflect on Jesus' loving sacrifice. You know, what's interesting is the Bible tells us today that God's temple is actually spiritual. It's not physical. In fact, the scriptures are very clear that we as the Lord's people are now the temple of God individually, as well as collectively as the church. 1 Corinthians 3 says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? And the Bible teaches us that the foundation, the chief cornerstone of God's temple spiritually is Jesus Christ. And the cornerstone was always the foundational stone upon which everything else was built off of and laid, but it also was the reference stone. Everything was measured off of the cornerstone. And we have to understand if we want to be right with God and we want to rightly worship God, we need to realize it all needs to be built off of the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the central focus. And we also need to realize the way that our lives are properly measured isn't measuring off of another Christian. It's not measuring off of this or measuring off of that or our own measurements. Oh, I'm not doing too bad. No, the measurement is Jesus. 1 uh, Peter chapter 2 tells us that we offer up spiritual sacrifices through rightly relating to Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I can tell you this very candidly. When I measure my life off of Jesus... I always find something out of alignment. I'm not doing stupid, horrific, sinful things, but I can tell you this, I'm not as Christ-like as I should be. And there are plenty of things when I look at Jesus that I realize, Lord, I'm not measuring up in certain areas. I still need your help, I need your grace, I need your forgiveness. And things become very clear and very evident when we look to Christ and assess ourselves off of him that at times we're not measuring up, but thank goodness He did. And that's what we celebrate, that He provided what was necessary and we trust and receive and appreciate that for ourselves as broken people.